0: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt
1: podcast, your home for deer hunting news stories and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 69. Today in the show, we're going to be chatting with one of the country's most prolific big buck hunters, and that's Adam Hayes. So let's get to it. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by Sika Gear. Now, listen up guys and gals, today we've got a guest on the show who I've wanted to have on for months and months and months, and finally, it's actually happening. This guest, of course, as I mentioned just a few seconds ago, is Adam Hayes, and you might recognize him from the TV show Team 200 or his past appearances on shows like Whitetail Addictions and others or in a bunch of different whitetail publications and books, but in a nutshell, what you need to know about Adam is that he is a ridiculously impressive hunter of big, mature whitetails, and specifically those biggest of the big bucks, because he's a little bit notorious for the fact that he has killed three, yes, three 200-inch bucks. That's impressive. Now, we do, though, always want to make the point that you know, the score of a buck isn't everything. There's way more that goes into a hunt and into the value of a deer than just his antlers. But that aside, for someone who simply appreciates, you know, the impressiveness and rarity of an animal like that and having then the skills to find and pattern and kill three bucks like that, I'm just kind of, I don't know any other word other than say impressed, just impressed and intrigued and very curious about how Adam does it. But, with that all said, today we're going to dive into the mind of Adam Hayes and try to understand how he's able to have this kind of success, and in particular, how he uses theories about the moon to help him do it. So, Dan, am I the only one over here that's all jacked up and excited?
2: I'm jacked. I'm pumped up. I'm Good. stoked. I'm geeked. I'm happy. I'm excited. All right. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm out of words now. Yeah,
1: I think this is going to be one of those episodes too, because not only are you tripping out over there, but I just drank a Red Bull, so uh, I'm pretty well hopped up on oh, caffeine.
2: Oh, this is a family show, Mark.
1: <laughs> Red Bull, while you know, caffeine may be considered an addictive drug, but it's it's one of those PG caffeine drugs. Yeah, so, I, had, I
2: had a Mountain Dew at work today because I literally fell asleep at my desk.
1: Yeah, can't can't be having that happen. I uh, speaking of desks. I just got back from visiting my old desk job.
2: Oh, yeah. What, like to rub it in their face? <laughs> no.
1: No, okay. Went back to the old goog and talked to my old coworkers. And <laughs> is that what they call up? it?
2: If you work for Google, is that like, <laughs> yeah, I went back to the old goog today. <laughs> I don't Said know. Hi to some
1: old buds. It might just be me that says that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> went there. It was fun to catch up with some friends and stuff. And they have free Red Bull. So, of course, I oh, had nice. to snag one. <laughs> nice. So, that's good. But, um, I'm very excited to talk with Adam, Um, but I had a weird thing happen today, and Mm. I have to share this. Okay. I got the strangest text message I've ever gotten from another man in my entire (laughs) life. I have a guy. A guy text messages me today, and he says, what kind of underwear are you wearing? Yeah, I probably should have been more specific. (laughs) (laughs) Only you would ever text me that.
2: <laughs> well, hey, I wanted, I wanted to know what kind of underwear that you typically wore when you go out west. I should have definitely added more detail to that because I can uh, I can see how that would be a little little weird.
1: <laughs> I just I didn't even know what to say when I first saw that. Yeah, but I I quickly came to, came to assume what you were, th- what you're saying. I, uh, I was hoping that's what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah.
2: And that it was, I, I really yeah. don't care what you're actually wearing. right now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that was interesting. So that, that really started off today on, a, on an interesting note, I'll say, <laughs> but, uh, anything deer related on your side of things? Um, of interest other than that?
2: No, man, I tell you right now, I am busy, I'm just kind of busy with getting ready for the Western hunt, Yeah. Um, making sure I have all my T's crossed and I's dotted and all that stuff. Um, And then, you know, as far as whitetails are concerned, just I'm kind of in a holding pattern right now until the next time I can check my trail cameras. Um, I have three, I got three tree stands set. I have, a couple more that I'll probably it's a place there are places where I'll go in and I'll hunt early season one time early season just to get a stand in there and then probably leave it alone until the rut
3: mm-hmm.
2: um and then uh, you know our our elk hunt and for those who I I think we changed our mind again,
1: right? Yeah, From I don't I don't, know. Time I don't we think talked. we've talked about it on the podcast yet, but yeah, we're we're changing things up a little bit.
2: So we're not going mule deer hunting now. We're going elk hunting and and so we pushed it back two weeks because we would have been leaving this Friday. Yeah. So instead, we're leaving in a couple weeks, uh, in two weeks, and um, heading out west to chase some milk. So I got my, I got some calls. I'm driving my wife batshit crazy. So, yeah,
0: yeah, right.
1: yeah. I heard your a couple sample calls that you've practicing over there, and uh, I can understand why that might drive her crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I do the same thing, though. My wife does not like it when I practice the cow calls.
2: Right. It's cool, though. I don't know what's more annoying, a crying baby or an elk call, because whenever I blow my elk call, my son, if somebody's crying, they stop crying and they just stare at me. (laughs) So it's like, you know, for my wife, it's probably hell no matter what. But for me, I'm just like, hey, I I hate when my son cries. I'm gonna blow this elk call, and then he shuts up and he just looks at me. When I stop, he just cries harder. So I actually just <laughs> keep going with it. I just ride it out.
1: Hey, it's a sounds like a solid strategy. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Yeah, um, the whole elk thing is is a story longer than we probably want to go into. But you had some changes of plans, and yep. and now we're gonna we're gonna roll with some elk in mid September, which I'm pumped about, and. Uh, Oh, real quick on my side, I did get one big whitetail-related project done over the past couple of days, but I actually didn't do anything. Um, I think I mentioned to you when I got back from being out west for two months, my food plot weed control had not gone the way I planned, and the plots were out of control. Yeah. And all I have is a little tiny ATV disc to disc up my food plots, and I've got like three acres of food plots. Um, but they were completely just grown-up bad. So I knew there was no way I was going to be able to break that ground up and handle all that vegetation with just my ATV. So I sprayed it all about 10 days ago, 12 days ago, got it all killed off. But then I actually um, asked around the area to try to find if there's anybody who I might be able to hire to bring a tractor in and help me disc that up. So I got um, Ben over at Michigan Food Plot Services, a local guy here, um, come out and help. And and that was great. Worked out really well for a super reasonable rate. And now I'm, I'm ready to rock and roll. I've got about three acres of fields tilled up and and ready so as soon as i get some rain coming here which hopefully will happen in the next few days i'm going to be spreading some seed and getting these plots growing so it's later than i'd like it to be um but i'm kind of playing catch up and and making the best i can after being gone so that's my next big thing is just going to be broadcasting a lot of seed and fertilizer and hoping to get this stuff growing soon but well i hope it turns out for you and you get the rain you need thank you i'm definitely going to be doing some rain dances yeah, buddy. Uh, well, I think uh I'm gonna add one more
2: thing real quick. Yeah. I recently got my very first article published in a magazine that I've yes, written. That is awesome. And I wanna take a moment here to actually thank you because when oh how long I mean, has it been a year yet? We've we've done it's been over a year, right? For yep. for Wired to Hunt. Yep. And when you approached me and You're like, hey, I want you to be my co-host. You know, first off, I want to say thank you for that opportunity. And second, it was, you know, whether you know it or not, you had a little bit of, you know, you motivated me to try to continue my writing. So I want to say thank you very much for the motivation to kickstart my, I guess you'd say, writing career and go and. I got my first article published in a magazine called Iowa Sportsman, and I'm pretty pumped about it. Yeah, so man,
1: that that's awesome, and you're welcome. It's been, uh, you know, I'm glad I could have helped in some small way, and it's exciting to see you uh, taking that step. So, congrats! That is that is super cool. So there's that. There's, there's all that. The,
2: there's all the emotional stuff. Out there's there. the
1: emotional stuff. Let's
2: talk big bucks.
1: Let's talk big bucks. I agree. Let's. Uh, I say, <laughs> you know. <laughs>
2: Men are not supposed to show emotion, Mark.
1: Men are not supposed to, we've talked about men's underwear. We've we've right. shared emotions. It's just too uh, much today. Yeah, today has been a this has been a special show. So <laughs> let's just quit while we're still ahead, maybe barely. Give Adam a call and start, start talking big bucks. But before we add them on the line, we need to briefly pause for a word from our sponsors of this podcast, Sika Gear. Now, as we do every week, I'm asking Sika product category leader, Dennis Zuck, a few questions. And today, I want to ask Dennis why Sika Gear doesn't have some type of scent-eliminating technology built into most of their gear
3: like some other companies do. So here's Dennis on that very question. Yeah, and I get this one a lot, to be honest. And, you know, we do have it in our base layers where we know we can prove that, you know, stopping the bacterial growth within a garment where moisture occurs um, absolutely changes the scent so it it eliminates the scent at a base layer level Um, we really try to and you'll hear you know if you listen to some of our other podcasts you know we talked we talk about authenticity we talk about not making claims around things we can't prove Um, and scent control is one of those things for us you know if you start digging deeply into scent control you know there's there's some things and there's some papers written on it where you talk about carbons you know, carbons, the, the desorption process of carbon and where, where you're, you know, you're, you're pulling that scent in. You know, that happens, but it does saturate, as do most of these things. And a lot of people don't talk about what happens when my product saturates. Um, you know, you can eliminate that, you can desorb it and get rid of it, but it takes, you know, carbon, as an example, takes 212 degrees to do that. But you've been made believe that you can put that in your home dryer, which never exceeds 165, that that's gonna be a solution for you. And it's not saying, it's not really you know, degrading any of the other solutions, but it's about making you a better hunter. You know, if you, if you know what's true and what's not, you can make educated decisions on how you decide to hunt. We believe you hunt the wind. We believe you, you hang your products out. We believe you keep them separate. Um, based on what we believe and what we can prove, we offer the solutions we offer today. So there you go. And
1: if you'd like to learn more about Sitka's polygene base layers or other whitetail gear, visit sitkagear.com. And now, let's get Adam on the line. All right, with us on the line now is Adam Hayes. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thanks, guys. Yeah, we are excited to have you on the line. And I say that every time we have someone on the show so maybe it sounds redundant but I really really mean it this time um, because <laughs> <laughs> no offense to everybody else that's been on the show. <laughs> but I yeah
0: you say that to all the guys <laughs> don't you? <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> but we really we really are excited to talk with you um, you know you're someone that I think we have both followed from afar read some stuff seen some things in the, in the different tv shows and have been interested in, in learning more from you so we're excited to do that but before we get into all of that You know, Dan and I know what you've been doing, but for people out there who maybe aren't familiar with you, can you tell them a little bit about, you know, how you got into the whitetail world and what you're doing today?
0: Yeah, I mean, it all started uh, when I was four years old. My dad stuck a bow in my hand and it's been downhill ever since, but (laughs) I've been in the industry for a little over 10 years producing various shows for various manufacturers worked with lone wolf tree stands for a while worked with tom miranda um starting the dominant bucks program and me and a few friends of mine started uh our own show actually three years ago team 200 and was on nbc last year sportsman's channel this year and seems to be taking off pretty well and then in the off season i'm a licensed real estate agent and i started a Huntley's program and <clears throat> Ohio and manage about 30,000 acres, trying to grow that program. So I stay pretty busy year-round.
1: Sounds like it, and uh, and busy in the good way, at least, with lots of deer-related stuff, so that's fun. uh, Yeah. You mentioned Team 200, your your relatively new show, and I've always assumed that kind of alluded to a 200-inch buck. And when a lot of people think about you, I think, they tend to think about the fact that you have killed three 200 inch bucks which is you know pretty unbelievable and i'm curious you know to kick things off and i want to dive right into the deer stuff without beating around the bush here of those three hunts for those three bucks was there any one of those that you know provided you the greatest lesson learned where that really was like an aha moment for you was there one of those that really stood out and if so could you share with us that that moment and that lesson
0: well i mean they definitely all stand out in their own special way. Um, probably, probably the last one, which was my biggest one. I chased that buck for, um, just one season. You know, it was a deer I didn't really have any history with other than the year um, prior to killing him. I had a friend in from out of town and on a late season hunt and that deer came strolling in and all I had in my hands was a camera and you don't know how much it crushed me to uh, watch him miss that deer.
1: <laughs> oh, Jeez.
0: But uh, you know, I, I I dedicated the whole next year that I'm on, you know, tried to find the sheds, um, trying to get a look at that deer in summer and uh, you know, just scoured every piece of cover um up until the day I saw him in late October for the first time again. And it just it never ceases to amaze me how elusive those animals can be even when you know they're there. I mean, how tough it can be to get a picture of one with a trail camera, how tough it can be to lay your eyes on one. And, um, you know, an opportunity at an animal like that that's five, six, seven years old, whether it's a 200-inch deer or a 150-inch deer that old, I mean, they're just a different creature, and you got to really approach those animals – from a completely different perspective, and it took me a long time to figure that out and uh, approach the game differently. But yeah, they're just they're just a different animal, and it just I guess that's the one that kind of stands out in my mind is how difficult they are to get a look at, even when you know they're there. Because I only saw that animal in January, and then the following October I saw him uh, three times total before I killed him, and that was it.
2: Wow. Were you you working trail cameras in between there to try to pinpoint his location?
0: Yeah, I mean, I've walked every piece of cover trying to find some sign from that animal. I had trail cameras up everywhere, and I just could never lay eyes on him, you know. Most of the deer I've hunted, I've I've been able to find in the summer in the soybeans, and I couldn't find him. Um, Never got a single trail camera picture of him kind of funny because in October I'd been hunting every day hoping to get a look at that deer and the night that I saw him was one of those nights when you wouldn't expect to see anything at all and I actually never saw any deer that night other than him. We had like 40 mile an hour winds, a huge front came in and that animal came running out of the, out of a big pine thicket, ran 200 yards out into the middle of the field and stopped and fed until dark.
1: Oh, wow. Not what you expect. And I just, yeah. Yeah, not what you expect
0: at all. And I hunted him hard for a couple more weeks. And um, cornfield came down, just drove the block. Actually, a few cornfields came down that night. Just kept driving the block, hoping to see him. And he popped out right at dark with uh, a couple does. Slid in the next next afternoon and um, actually hung the stand, the sticks in the stands, the lone wolf sticks and stand. That night at 3.30, and he stood up 80 yards away from me right before dusk, and I killed him.
1: Wow. So just in that story right there, there's like four different things I'm already like curious about, but I want to maybe take it to the beginning here, and you've killed 300, 200-inch buck. You've you've had success with a number of other great big mature bucks, and like you said a minute ago, when it comes to these five, six, seven year old deer, it's a whole nother ballgame. So what are you doing differently than everybody else out there who's trying to kill deer like this that isn't able to do it? What do you think if you could, if you could drill it down to a thing or two, what do you think that you do uniquely that's actually allowing you to get these shots?
0: Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is I actually got find the deer before I start hunting them. I mean, I know a lot of people that get, you know, have their farm or have their hunt lease and just hope that a giant deer like that shows up and that's normally just not the way it works, you know. You can wait a lifetime on a piece of property hoping a deer like that might show up, but you're never going to kill one unless he actually lives there. So I've actually gone out and located all the big deer that I've killed, you know, first and foremost. You, You can't kill them if they're not there, so that's probably the first thing. And I know there's a lot of guys doing that, but. Um, that would be number one. Number two was, uh, you know, I started having a big change in my success on mature animals when I quit hunting the winds that were good for the deer, winds that were good for me. And I started hunting winds that were good for the deer I was after. And that kind of throws a lot of people when I tell them that. But if you think about it, uh, an animal that's lived five or six years, He lives and dies by that wind and trusts his nose more than anything. And if you don't give a mature animal the wind to his advantage, especially early season when I've killed most of my deer, chances are he's just going to lay in his bed until dark and not even get up. I mean, those big, mature bucks just normally, you know, except for maybe during the rut, don't move that much during daylight unless they've got everything in their favor. And when I started giving those animals the wind to their favor and their advantage, you know, and then knowing where I needed to be to kill them and waiting for that perfect wind for the deer, not for me, and then adding um, the moon to the whole equation, that's when I really started putting big deer on the ground consistently.
1: So let's drill in a little bit further. When it, when it comes to, you know, understanding the fact that the deer want the wind in their favor, can you share with us in detail, you know, what you mean by that? And so, you know, when I think about it, some of the common beliefs is that a deer always wants the wind in his face or quartering to his face, or there's certain beliefs about how a deer likes to come back to his bed or certain beliefs about how a deer likes to come to feeding. Can you share with us what you believe they do when it comes to using wind when either traveling between bedding or feeding or vice versa?
0: Well, I mean, they're going to use it to their advantage one way or another, whether it's, you know, walking straight into the wind or, you know, working across wind to scent check a field before they come out. I mean, one way or another, a mature animal is going to be using the wind. You know, the trick is finding somewhere along that travel pattern where you can actually get within bow range of them while he's using the wind at his advantage. You know, and there's a lot to that. I mean, you've got to not only be able to get into that location without that deer knowing that you're there, you know, and without busting any other deer out. But it it can be really tricky to find a spot like that where you can actually get within 20 or 30 yards of an animal while he's moving into the wind. But, you know, when you start really doing your serious scouting and and walking these travel patterns and dissecting how they use the land and and their rubs and scrapes, you know, the telltale signs of what they're doing and how they're doing it, and, and look for that, uh, I call it a weak spot. You know, it can—it's normally some type of change in terrain or a, or a crossing or, you know, something that alters their path or their direction when they when they might um, kind of cheat the wind a little bit. I mean, those are the spots that I'm looking for when I'm looking for a place to kill an animal. And uh, they're not easy to find, but they're out there, you know. And I've even had it to where the weak spot, actually, you know, when that deer got to that weak spot, the wind was blowing for me straight to him. But it already had an arrow in him before he winded me. So sometimes it can be, you know, splitting hairs to that extreme. But I just I honestly believe that unless you give him a mature animal the wind to where he feels comfortable enough to get up and move during daylight, it, it just it increased my success tenfold when I started looking at it from that perspective
1: yeah and it's that's one of those things the last few years too that that i've been trying to better Mm -hmm. understand but like you said it's it's tricky to find those spots and i think a lot of people struggle translating it from something they read or hear about to then actually finding it in the field and be like oh yeah this is that spot so i'm curious and and maybe this is um too much of a curveball, but is there like a, a specific stand site that you can think of right now of yours that, that kind of fits this mold that you could describe, you know, in detail, like just as an example that we could kind of visualize.
0: Um, yeah, I guess the best example, I'll try to, try not to make this sound too confusing, but if you've got an animal that's working the edge of a field just inside the timber, and you've got a wind that's blowing from the field into the timber, and that deer is moving along the edge of that field perpendicular perpendicular to where that he's got a crosswind, mm-hmm. and he's actually winding that field or scent-checking that field. One of the big deer that I killed was doing that, and where I was able to kill him was where he stopped moving in that direction and turned to go into the field. Now, his bedding area was back behind this, you know, edge of this field. So when he come out of his bedding area, he's walking straight into the wind. He gets to the edge of the field. He turns and starts working the edge of the field with a crosswind. So when that deer got up out of his bed, he's, he's heading towards his food source, source wind in his face. He gets to the field, he starts moving left to right with a crosswind so he can smell everything in the field. And then when he stopped about 100 yards down and turned, that was where my stand was at. So really, that deer was doing everything perfectly. He got up out of his bed, went in his face, he got to the edge of the field. Instead of going out into the field when it's still daylight, he's working the edge of it just inside the timber like a mature animal will. Rubs and scrapes all along inside of the timber. And if I would have been a hundred yards down that trail to where he was directly into the cover from where I was, my scent would have been blowing right into him. But I knew by reading the sign, I needed to be down his trail to where he turned and got came into the field, so that my wind was blowing in the same direction he was coming from. But it was just you know a hundred yards down through the timber. Are, are you guys following me with that? Yeah. yeah.
1: It just sounds perfect. Um, so did you did you figure out that a buck was doing this? Was this like based on observation, or was it purely like, okay, you're making some assumptions, I believe there's a buck bedded here, and I believe he'll want to come out to the field, and then, then you start checking that edge, and you saw a sign there, and that's confirming your assumptions. And, you know, is that how you were figuring these things out, or was it actually seeing him do it before?
0: Yeah, you know, it really starts late season when all the cover's down, seasons over with you can go in and you can find these core areas where these mature animals feel safe um it's usually really thick cover there's usually going to be a concentration of a lot of you know medium to big rubs in the area and it, you know it, it's a it's a core area it's a it's a big bucks bedding area and you find those late season scouting you can read the sign you can see what direction they're heading um based on the, you know, the direction of their rubs, you find their scrapes. I mean, the food sources are pretty obvious where they're going to be feeding. And you just start connecting the dots and you just look at it through the animal's eyes and think, you know, how can I get from here to there and be safe and what wind do I need to to feel safe. And it's, it's just, you know, trying to get that big picture and understand what that animal's doing. And this is all done, me, like i said months in advance and then you know you you go in in september after these animals start you know shedding that velvet and rubbing on trees to confirm that they're back in the area and um you know just there there is some guesswork to it and then some things that you're just going to have to try to take for granted that are going to happen but um it's a whole process that starts you know as soon as, as soon as the season's over with trying to figure out where these animals are living, what they're doing and, you know, getting that big picture and putting the pieces of the puzzle together.
2: How important is being mobile to your process?
0: You know, I I love to have my stands in advance in a tree, you know, two or three months before season, if it's at all possible, but man, things change almost on a daily basis, especially after season starts, you know, with, Food sources changing, crops being harvested, hunting pressure—it's just—it's just a never-ending cycle of change. And if you—if you aren't able to think out of the box and be able to change things up at the last minute, you're really hurting your chance for success. You got to be able to, you know. Strap a stand on your back, read your sign, go in and do a hanging hunt sometimes. Now that's, that's basically how I killed my biggest deer. You know, I saw that animal the night before come out. I knew from my scouting what I thought he would be doing, where I thought he'd be betting at. Went in, stand on my back, read the sign, picked the right trail and uh, had equipment that I was actually able to hang in the tree quietly enough with that ammo bed at 80 yards away that I was able to kill him. you know? you got to be able to do that if you want to be successful consistently.
1: Yeah, when I when I hear about that type of hunting strategy, um, and we talk about it a lot, me and Dan do as well, but whenever I, I think about this type of stuff, my, my mind instantly goes to Andre DeQuisto, who's a guy that I think me and Dan are both fascinated with, um, and you, from what I understand, got to work with him, you know, with the TV show and different things like that. Was there any big lesson that you learned from him um that has translated into some of these things you're doing now?
0: Yeah, that particular hunt I probably would have never even tried if it wouldn't have been for Andre. Yeah, you know, I worked for Andre for four or five years. Um, spent a lot of time in the tree with him. Um and I'll tell you one thing, if I was a big animal, that is the last man on this earth that would want <laughs> trying to stick an arrow in me. <laughs> He he's on a completely different level when it comes to chasing whitetails.
1: Yeah, that's what it seems. We're uh we're <laughs> I think we're kind of fanboys, me and Dan are of, of everything that guy has done and um just really interested in in how he processes these types of situations and, and figures out where to go, when to go there, how to pull it off. Um, and it sounds like you're doing a lot of the same things. Um, which is which is pretty cool stuff. I know that One of the things you mentioned a little while ago before we got into this whole piece of where to set up is the moon and thinking about, in addition to how are the deer using the wind in their favor, you also mentioned that you're paying attention to the moon and that's helping you determine when to move into these places. Um, So I'm curious, and I've got a lot of questions around this. Can you give us a high level overview of how you think the moon influences deer and then how you then have a strategy based around that can you give us the high level and then we'll kind of dig in from there
0: yeah i got i got into some moon theories about 20 years ago um good friend of mine jeff murray who passed away a few years back had some really out of the box theories when it came to the moon um he wrote a really interesting book about it he interviewed um miles keller in that book which i've learned and picked up and implemented a lot of his strategies into my into my hunting but jeff's theory basically was that there's four peak moon times every day you have the rise and the set and you have the overhead and underfoot and i've done quite a bit of research on it over the last 20 years, and when that moon is directly straight up or straight down, overhead or underfoot, that's when it's the closest to the Earth in its its rotation, and that's when it has the most gravitational pull. I mean, it has a big enough impact on the Earth that it triggers tides. A lot of people believe it triggers fish to feed, and after watching it and paying close attention to it for 20 years, it has a significant impact on mature animals. It's basically a natural instinctive pull or urge for animals to get up and feed. And after, you know, paying attention to it for this long, I've seen it happen so many times that I just um I believe in it more than anything else. Uh most deer, most of your deer in a deer herd are going to move at dawn and dusk regardless. Your does, your fawns, your immature bucks, they're going to move you know, within an hour of daylight and dark every day, pretty much. A mature animal is not going to do that every day. A lot of the time they're doing it, they're going to be doing it after dark, especially during hunting season. What i found is that there's a handful of days each month when those, I call them red moon times, when those moon times occur at prime time, when that moon is either peaking straight up overhead or underfoot within two to three hours of dark in the evening or daylight in the morning, those are the days that those mature animals, you're going to have your best chance of seeing those mature animals move during daylight because not only do they want to normally move at that time, but they're, you know, their their senses or the past history and confrontations with hunters have, have changed their pattern to move under the cover and security of dark. Those days when that mood is actually pulling them naturally to get up and move a little bit early when they normally want to anyway, and then you give that animal that perfect wind that I was talking about before, it's almost like it's too much for that animal not to get up. Because if you think about it, that buck's laying there. He wants to get up and feed. He's got the wind in his favor, and then he's got the moon on top of that, pulling him to get up within an hour or two of when he normally wants to get up and move anyway. It's just, it's like too much of a natural urge for them not to do it. And I I shot my ninth Boone and Crockett animal with a bow last year. And all nine of those animals have been killed on days where those moon times peaked at prime time in the morning or the evening. I believe in it so much that I use it in the summer, even when I'm trying to get a look at a big mature animal in development. Because anybody that's spent any time watching soybean fields in the summer knows that a, a giant deer doesn't like to be seen even in the summer when he knows it's safe. But there are days when you get those overhead moons in the evenings that those are the best nights to see those animals. My second 200-inch deer, I was trying to get footage of it for my show. I think it was the very first or second year I did a TV show. I knew how big that deer was. I was desperately trying to get some footage of him, and I sat 51 nights in a row trying to film that deer. And I swear to you, the only two nights that that animal came out with enough daylight to film were right on those times on that moon guide. I even had predicted it to a couple of my friends, and they thought I was nuts. <laughs> but I knew that was going to be the nights I got video footage of them, and I did. I've got the video footage to prove it. I'll show anybody the dates and times of the animals that I've killed in relationship to the times off Jeff Murray's moon guide. I even went on... I even went on the Internet and looked at the two biggest bucks killed in the country last year, two giants from Iowa. Those deer were killed on the same days and same times on the, on the red moon times that I'm talking about, and I'll bet you those guys had no idea.
1: Right, right. Probably a lot of guys are seeing this kind of little bit of extra movement, and they have no idea that it might be correlated to some moon phase, things like that. So, yeah. So something you mentioned a couple times there was the moon guide. Which is a tool that, that I'm just now I've heard about a lot. I never give it a whole bunch, lot of credence, but I've been intrigued by it. I finally picked up one for myself, and I'm gonna be testing it this year, but I know that's something that that you've done a lot of work with. Can you tell us what that specifically is and how you use that to help you understand when these specific red moon days are and everything else you can do with it?
0: Yeah, I mean it's a dial um what it does is it gives you every day from august through january gives you the moon times every day and what that uh, what that does is you can look at that guide and see months in advance which days each month you have those perfect moon times and you can I schedule my out of state hunts around it I won't dive into my kill spots until I know I've got those you know perfect moon days and moon times on my side and one thing that the Moon Guide does that none of the other Moon Guide or or hunting apps out there do is it, it tells you what areas you need to be hunting in relationship to what those times are because obviously if you have a a, a red moon time that hits in the middle of the day, you're not going to be hunting the same type of area that you would if it happened at prime time in the evening. So the moon guide actually tells you every day what the times are and where you need to be hunting, whether you need to be out on a field edge, whether you need to be in a transition zone, or you need to be back in the bedding cover. So it really takes all the guesswork out of what day, what time, and where you need to be at for your for your you know your best chance at catching a big deer moving during daylight.
1: And and again, you mentioned that there's there's four times during the day that have some type of peak. There's the rising and setting when the moon correlates with or coincides with that. And then the overhead and underfoot. Now, if I understand correctly, the days that you're referring to as these red moon days though, is when those underfoot and overhead times are at the same time as your typical morning activity or your typical evening activity. Is that right?
0: Yeah, to a degree, you know, for the first 10, 15 years I used it, I was strictly going off the, um, the times for early season. I mean, I don't know how many years in a row it was where I was killing a really big, mature animal early season in October, you know, during the October lull when most guys aren't really putting much effort into it. And I thought, I figure during the rut, you could probably throw that thing out the window because, you know, who knows what a buck's going to be doing in November or where he's going to be doing it or what time he's going to be doing it. But in the last few years, I've started having a lot more success on my out-of-state hunts because I've been paying attention to the to that moon guide and not only planning my hunts out-of-state by it, but spending more time in the woods during midday on the times when you get those overheads right in the middle of the day. And in the last three years, I've shot two booners in Kansas, one at 10 o'clock and one at high noon, right on those overhead times.
1: So you die about it.
0: I do. I do. I honestly do. I mean I had just as an example, three years ago, I had gone out to Kansas a little early ahead of the ahead of the red moon days, just to kind of get stands up, get things ready, get my cameras up, start monitoring the area. Um I knew there was a, a big gear on the farm where I was hunting. And as soon as I got there I Happens to a lot of guys. You get there and all of a sudden, bam, a warm front hits and everything just shuts down. I mean, it's 80, 75, 80 degrees in November, and there's nothing worse than heat during November. I mean, Mm -hmm. the weather supersedes the moon 100%. So I spend the first week there, six, seven days, nothing's going on. I'm watching my cameras, I'm hunting morning and evening hunting on the, you know, the right moon times and just nothing. About the, I don't know if it was a sixth or seventh day, I get down around uh, 1030, going to go grab a quick lunch, check a camera, change stands, go to a different location. I slide in and check a camera I've got on a scrape. And the big pin I was after was on camera 20 minutes before I got there five minutes off of the five minutes off the overhead moon. So my reasoning is that the following day the overhead moon is at twelve o'clock high noon. I'm gonna I've got to stand close to that scrape. I'm gonna get in there early in the morning. I'm planning on sitting all day. I shot that animal the next day at ten till noon. Ten minutes off that overhead moon.
1: Wow. Now, if
0: that happened, if that happened once in a hunting career, yeah, coincidence. Maybe twice, but it's happened to me nine times just on the animals that I've killed. Now, I'm not not even talking about the animals, the big bucks I've got on trail camera during the daylight, or the big ones that I've seen on those times. I mean, it's just it's too much to be just a coincidence. You know, there's been a lot of research done where. The guys from deer and deer hunting and, and Alzheimer has Alzheimer, however you pronounce his name, <laughs> have done have done radio collar studies and say that the moon is what triggers the rut, so you can't tell me that the moon influences and triggers the rut, but it doesn't have any influence on mature deer moving. It just it makes no sense whatsoever. It does. I've seen it work. I've got a wall full of giant deer to prove it if somebody wants to look at days and times I've killed them. And, yeah, I believe in it more than anything else that I do. And Like I said before, when you can find a big animal, do your scouting, know where you need to be to kill that buck, and then have the discipline and the patience to wait for that perfect wind and that perfect moon of those nine boon and Crockett's I've killed, every single one of them, but one has been killed the first time I set that tree stand. And I tell you, when it comes to hunting big deer, sometimes the toughest part of hunting big deer is not even hunting them at all. And, and staying out of that spot, why go through all the effort of finding these deer, spending countless hours scouting, figuring out where you need to be, and then dive in before everything's perfect? Because chances are you're going to go in there not get it done, that animal's going to either see you, smell you, figure out what's going on, and then the game just got tougher. Yeah. you got to go in and you got to kill them the first time in, and you've got to wait for everything to be perfect before you go in and do it. And if you can do that, you're going to put more big deer on the ground. I promise you.
2: So then do you do you do any observation stands? Like you're setting up just to see what this field is doing or getting close enough to a particular area, knowing that it's not necessarily a kill set?
0: Yeah, I use observation stands. That's a technique that I picked up from um, that book that Jeff wrote when he interviewed Miles Keller. And Miles talked about his strategy of how he would hunt from the outside in. Basically, he would hang an observation stand to watch an area and to learn what an animal was doing. And he would gradually move closer and closer until he knew the exact tree he needed to be in to kill that animal and what wind he needed and what area he needed to to avoid to get into that stand undetected. And I started using observation stands in the summer, you know, scouting for big deer and watching how they would use a food source and learning what winds they used and what trails they used with each wind and that sort of thing. And, you know, even in the, even in the season, I spend a lot of time in my observation stands watching an area develop. Because like I said, I won't go into an area until everything is perfect, the wind and the moon. But just because I don't have the moon and the wind in my favor doesn't mean I'm going to sit at home and not hunt. I'm going to be in an observation stand or I'm going to be on a different farm trying to learn something about another deer. So, yeah, That's a good point. Observation stands are, yeah, they're a big key to, uh, to what I do.
1: I think you know, like you mentioned, uh, you know, understanding the fact that you need to have all as many possible variables in your favor um, before heading into your kill set. And, you know, understanding that patience that's needed. That was one of the biggest kind of light bulb moments for me. That's really changed my type of success. Um, but I like the idea that you had there. You know, speaking to the fact that yeah, you don't want to go into your best spots. You don't want to push into these areas until the conditions are right. But at the same time. You still can maybe get out there and learn something from a distance with that observation stand because a lot of guys, you know, when I talk about this, when I say, you know, hunt less and you'll kill more. Um, but they're like, Well, I only get to hunt weekends or I only have so many opportunities that I can actually get out there and hunt. Maybe this is, you know, the fact that yeah, you can get out there and hunt, but observe and just wait until those perfect conditions before you really push in there. I think that's a key point to to take home from here.
0: Yeah, exactly, and and that's what makes something like the moon guide even more important to a guy, you know. Not, Not everybody gets to hunt every day of season, you know, like somebody like myself. They've got a week or two of vacation, or they've got, you know, certain evenings or weekends that they don't have, you know, obligations to the family, and they have limited time. That's why you can take that moon guide and look months in advance and know, you know, Here's the week. Here's the 30 days. I know I got to be ready to go in my best spots and plan that stuff weeks or even months in advance. It's, it's even more crucial for somebody that has limited time.
1: All right. Now, I know we're getting into some great stuff here with Adam. But quickly, before we have another question with Adam, we need to pause briefly for a word from our sponsors of this podcast episode, Carbon Express. And Carbon Express this year has launched a brand new arrow called, quite simply, the Whitetail Arrow. And what's pretty cool is that they've teamed up with the Quality Deer Management Association to create this best-in-class, mid-range price point arrow. And to celebrate this new product, Carbon Express and the QDMA have launched a giveaway contest in which you simply need to submit a photo and caption of one of your greatest whitetail moments. And the winner of this contest will receive a four-day, three-night, all-expenses-paid hunt with Carbon Express at Giles Island. So... That sounds pretty cool. So if you're interested in signing up for that or learning more about the Whitetail Arrow, visit whitetail.carbonexpressarrows.com. And now back to the show. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned briefly a little bit earlier that you said that weather does, in your opinion, transcend everything else. Can you talk to us in a little more detail about how you believe weather is impacting deer movement um, and then one thing in particular about weather temperature is usually where, our, you know, my, most people jump to when they think about weather. Um, but also do you pay at all attention to barometric pressure? This is something we've started to been talking to more people about. I'm curious about what your take on both temperature and pressure.
0: Obviously, I think the warmer it is, the more it impacts the rut and probably suppresses it. Um, I mean, I don't like to be out moving around when it's really hot out. So I'm sure a deer with a his winter coat on doesn't like to either. You know, I've spent a lot of time hunting up in Canada and those big animals up there, they just will not move until it's, it's brutally cold. You know, they're just, they're more comfortable moving with the cooler temperature. So I definitely believe there's something to the, you know, to the fact that the warmer it is, especially during the rut, the, the less their deer are going to move. You know, I have noticed it seems like they're, um, during high pressure, seems to be a little bit more deer movement. But I can't honestly say that I've, that I've paid as much attention to that as I have the moon. You know, I, 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 definitely, I definitely hunt, you know, at the, at the beginning and the end of any, any type of fronts that move through. You know, I've seen increased movement, uh, you know, on weather fronts when they come in and after they've, after they've passed through. But, uh, yeah, I hate to say a whole lot about barometric pressure and that sort of thing, because I just, I really haven't paid that much attention to it. I've just had such good success with the moon and figuring out through trial and error, what's worked for me over the years that, um, I just haven't let that sort of thing impact my decisions when it comes to hunting a
1: whole lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think everything you said there was pretty consistent with, you know, what I've seen and heard. And I think, Dan, I don't know how you are, but from my standpoint, every time we, we talk to someone about this, there's always, you know, there's a lot of consistent themes that, that a lot of successful hunters are picking up on when it comes to how deer are reacting to these different factors. But then each, each of us, has a slightly different way that we maybe apply it or maybe a slightly different way of how we weight each one of these different variables. But I think if there's anything I've learned over you know 68 or 70 different of these interviews, it's that these factors do matter. Deer are influenced by things like the moon, weather, pressure, hunting pressure, all these things to varying degrees based on where you're at and all these different factors. But if there's anything I've learned, it's the fact that we need to have our eyes open to this. Like, be aware of these things. Pay attention to these things, and you know, look at at each one of your hunts, and be you know thinking through. Okay, what happened to it? Why did I see thirty seven deer tonight? Or why was it that that giant buck did move yesterday? And look at these different variables, and and we can start to learn some of these things ourselves if we pay attention to it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's funny how many people I talk to about the moon, and I start telling them, you know, about my my history with it and my observations over the years. And they start thinking about it and said, yeah, you know, I just driving down the road and see deer out in the middle of the field and wonder what in the hell are they doing out there in the middle of the field this time of the day? Well, it was probably because there was an overhead moon in the middle of the day. (laughs) It's just funny how, how much attention guys pay to gimmicks and how little attention they pay to something like the moon that has an effect on the entire planet. And they're not open-minded enough to think, well, maybe maybe that same thing that influences tides does have a little bit of influence on when deer move.
1: Yeah, I would definitely say rather than getting overexcited about some kind of call or attractant or any other thing you can buy in the store, I would much rather be paying attention to what Mother Nature is applying and that would deer deal with every single day, understand that stuff first before you start, Getting too excited about any little extra gizmo you can get.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to be hard on anybody or or point a finger at anybody about anything like that. There's a lot of great products out there, but yeah, oh, yeah. you nail you hit the nail on the head. It's about mother nature and paying really paying attention to what's going on with mother nature and and the natural world of of the deer.
2: Yeah. To piggyback on that question right there, you know, like an animal they kind of have a sense do you think like really good hunters have and, and and maybe I just ask you this question do you kind of have a gut feeling when you walk into the timber like you know what I don't need to be here I need to be 20 yards further this way I mean do you have like a sense or a gut feeling that is just like a, it's almost overwhelming to you
0: yeah, and I wish I would have paid more attention to it over the years. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, can, can I mean, you
2: can you explain can you explain that a little bit? I mean, what, how, I know you use the moon, you use the weather, we use all this stuff, but but so do I, and so do other hunters. And I just feel that there is this some there's, I guess what I'll say is some guys get it and some guys don't and there is that yeah. there's this mysterious line that it separates really good hunters for, and and you know the term good hunters kind of funny but guys like you from guys like everybody else if that makes sense
0: uh, i don't think it is i don't think it's anything that that i have that somebody else doesn't have i think it's something that that I have learned from spending so much time in the woods and so much time paying attention to detail and, and listening to, um, you know, things that Andre used to talk about and reading what Jeff and Miles Keller talked about and just putting all that stuff together, you know, in the field and keeping my mind open to, to, you know, to new things and, and out of the box thinking and, Maybe being aggressive a little bit more aggressive than the average guy. I mean, I think it's just an accumulation of, of knowledge and, and time in the woods, and you know, trying to figure out that big picture and looking at it from a deer's point of view instead of what I think. And you know, sometimes, sometimes I think it's a matter of overthinking something. You step into step into the woods, and your your first your first gut instinct on where you need to be is is usually where you should be i've caught myself overthinking things and and ended up you know being in the wrong spot and uh, need to pay you know pay attention to your instincts especially you know if you spend a lot of time in the woods and and uh you know just get to know you know how deer use the terrain and use the available cover and yeah, I, I don't think it was anything I was born with, or any advantage I have over anybody else, other than the fact that you know I've, I may have put more effort and time into you know learning about it, and there's there's no replacing the the scouting and the time you spend in the woods, learning your area and learning the animals that you're after. So you're not a Jedi is what I'm getting at. <laughs> no, no. Okay. Yeah.
1: No, no. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think <laughs> I think what you said there, Adam, is is right in line with what my theory has kind of always been is that there seems to be some type of threshold that a hunter reaches at some point where after you know, if you spend as much time as you do whether it's actually in the field looking at things, or talking to other people, or studying, you know, literature, or whatever it might be, what researching and, and, and delving into this stuff as deeply as you do, and as me and Dan do, um, I think at some point you reach a level where this stuff goes from something that you need to sit and think about really hard, and it goes to a point where it becomes like second nature, like. I think that's when it starts feeling like a gut instinct when you walk into a stand of timber and you're like, yeah, that's the spot I need to be. That's not like you're a Jedi. That's, that's just because you've spent 25 years thinking about these things, processing things, and now they become something that's almost part of your sense, part of your, your inner self because it's just what you've studied and experienced so much. That's kind of how I look at it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's like anything else. The more time and effort you put into it, the more it becomes second nature.
1: Mm hmm. So I want to keep on rewinding. There's all these things that you mentioned in the, in the beginning that I, I want to dive into further now that are still on the top of my head. You talked about the success that you have towards the end of October. Partly in that period of time that people call the October lull. Um, And from some of the things I've read, you've certainly killed some of your giant bucks during that time frame. And I I understand that, you know, what we've been talking about, the moon and understanding to be patient and waiting to push in until those conditions are right. I know that's a big part of your your kind of formula for success. But what else are you doing at that time of year? What are the other pieces of that puzzle in late October that are helping you have success? Because people struggle with that sometimes.
0: Yeah, well, it goes back to really seeing the big picture and understanding what's going on that time of the year. You know if, if if you're after a specific animal and you want your best opportunity to kill that animal, you need to concentrate on when that animal is going to be the most predictable and the most patternable and that's early season. Before you've got into into the rut when you chasing all over the place late season they've been pressured for three or four months and they're on edge every little thing they hear and smell and see early season is i think it's your best chance to kill a specific animal and you know a lot of people talk about the october law and how tough it is to hunt yeah it is in a sense but you know i learned this from andre is that those animals are doing the exact same thing pretty much every day. All they're doing is they're bedding and they're feeding and they're going from A to B. And they're doing it in a very, very small area. They're not traveling very far at all. They're, they're very vulnerable because they're so predictable and patternable because they're doing the same thing every day, but... They're very tough to kill because they're doing it in a very small area, and you're normally only going to get one chance to invade that little area before the game's over, and it completely changes his pattern. He goes nocturnal. He goes to the next farm over. I don't believe they run out of the county, but they will definitely change their pattern. So you're only going to get one crack at them early. So that's when the late-season scouting comes into play, that's when, you know, knowing what these animals are doing, where they're at, you know, where they're bedding, where they're feeding, how they're getting back and forth from A to B, knowing where the weak spot's at, where you need to be to kill them, having things set up, knowing what winds you need to get into that spot to kill them, you know, maybe having some strategically placed trail cameras along that pattern so you know when that animal is moving during daylight. And, um like I said, it, it's a tough time to hunt but if you really understand what's going on it's your best chance to kill a big mature buck because he's doing the exact same thing every day it just makes it very difficult to, to get it done on more than one occasion because like I said you you walk into the, that buck's bedroom in mid October and you don't kill him the, the game is it either got tougher or it's over because he's, he's going to be somewhere else he's going to know you were in there and it's just that's why it's so tough for guys, like I said, to, to not hunt a big deer until so everything's perfect. And then once you get it perfect, you know how to get into that area without disturbing that animal. And you kill him the first time in when he's got the, the wind and the moon in his favor. Get in and get him out. Andre used to say it was he was surgically removing a big buck from the face of the earth. And that's really <laughs> which, how you got to look at it. You know, you're sense. looking at it like a surgeon. Think about the amount of after the surgeon puts into, you know, not only, you know, being able to practice medicine, but knowing what he needs to do in that operating room before he goes in there. And it's really, it's that black and white. I mean, you, you got to go in there and surgically remove that animal.
1: Yeah, I, I love that analogy. That's that's one that I'm going to start using. I like it. Um, so something you mentioned, and it's something that, you know, I've always – have believed i think to a degree is during that time of year typically if you have all these things in your favor is it safe to say that you are usually trying to get closer to a bedding area at that time of year when you have the right conditions when you know where the buck is most of those hunts those kill sets are probably tight in the bedroom because of like you mentioned the fact that these bucks are using a really small area
0: yeah i mean for the most part i think those deer are moving around you know in the area where I hunt in central Ohio, they're not moving very far between their bed and where they're feeding at hundred, 200 yards max. So wherever you're at, you're pretty darn close to where he's bedding.
1: Yeah. So can you yeah, tell us- and I've
0: had my best, I've had my best luck on those, on those sets in evening hunts. I very, very rarely ever try a morning hunt early season on those animals. But if I'm going to, if I've tried it once or twice in the evening, and haven't got it done, and I know right where that animal is bedding, and then maybe I have a stand already hung in that bedding area, I will not go into that bedding area on an early season hunt until I have that red moon time one, two, three hours after daylight. I've witnessed it on a handful of occasions, seeing a big you know, 200-class animal coming back to bed late, on those overhead times late in the morning, and now those were the only times that animal came back late
2: wow. so, so they're sta- they're feeding a little later because the, yeah the moon is telling them to not go back to bed yet
0: yeah, instead of you know the, that, that moon time hitting in the middle of the night, and they fed and they're laying down and starts cracking daylight, and they're heading back and get into their bed you know before shooting light. They're actually feeding closer to daylight, and you have a better chance of them feeding, you know, into daylight and coming back just a little bit late.
2: So, how how much of a buffer are you giving yourself when you go into those tree stands, as far as time's concerned? Are you going in two hours early, one hour early? You're talking about
0: mornings, or evenings, yeah, or both? M- mornings. Well, mornings I'd like to get in super early because I want everything to have a chance to to calm down and I'm I mean, if I go in and try to dive into a bedding area in the morning, I'm taking my time. I mean, I don't wanna break a twig, I don't wanna bang my bow up against the stand. I mean, I don't wanna do anything. I'm I'm doing everything in slow motion because you just can't make any mistakes in a bedding area in the morning. So I give myself twice as much time as I think I need to get into my spot undetected, you know, literally tiptoeing into a spot and, you know, giving myself an hour before daylight for everything to to maybe calm down a little bit and just to make sure that that animal is nowhere close to the bedding area if, if it's at all possible when I get in there.
1: Yeah. So kind of related to this, a topic that I've heard, we keep on going back to him, but something I've heard Andre talk about a lot, not a lot, but several times, is this idea like the bump and dump, I think he calls it, where if you happen to bump a buck out of his bed, you go back in and set up right over top of that bed or right in that area now that you know where he was bedded and try to get a stab at him the next morning when he comes back. Is that something you ever tried?
0: You know, I've I've hoped that I would run into that situation sometime in my hunting career to where I could actually put that into place because I've seen Andre do it numerous times and it, uh, he's definitely had some success with it. I've, I've yet to come across a situation where I could do that, but it definitely works. And I know a lot of guys that have tried it, but they missed the point of, of being in there the very next morning, because if you go in there and this was always my mindset before. I talked to Andre about it, is you go in there, bump that deer out of his bed, you know, then you got to go back to your truck or go back home, get your stand, get whatever you need, go back in later that day or the next day to hang your stuff, clear some shooting lanes, give it a couple days to cool off, and then go back in. Well, in the meantime, that buck has come back in there, smelled that you were there, saw, you know, some lanes trimmed or whatever, picked up on your scent. And he's not coming back. You've got to be there waiting for that animal the very next time he comes back. That's the most important part of that whole scenario. Yeah, you, know, you got to have your stand on, stand on your back. Andre always liked to move into that bedding cover with the wind in his face. So if he did bump a big deer, they didn't smell him. You know, he spooked them. They don't know if it was a, a hunter, a coyote, a cow, what it was get everything done have stand on your back go ahead hang the stand have everything ready and be there the very next morning or two mornings or three mornings later however long it takes that buck to come back and yeah man he put some big gear on the ground doing that but i just have not had a chance to put that practice into play yet
1: yeah it's a it's an it's an interesting strategy, um, and it's one that that I, I haven't got to put into play yet. But uh, a friend of mine, two years ago, you know, having heard about this from Andre, was able to pull it off and kill the booner, and um, the first time he said it after spooking, spooking that buck out of there, so that was pretty cool. Um, I think something you said there about the, you know how that very first time the the deer comes back to the bed after you set up your stand, that's like your, your best shot. I think that applies not just in this bump and dump scenario, but even anytime when you're setting up a stand mobilely during the season, you know, lots of people do say set a stand and then don't come back for it for two, three days. Well, I think to your point, hunt it right away because that first time back, you might be able to get an arrow on before they realize that someone's been hanging out in their area. Um, that's a key thing. I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Andre had a pretty cool story. He told me once about a guy that had a great spot, has a big deer on his property, and he just couldn't get it done. And come to find out, you know, that guy had two or three stands that he always hunted the same ones, always went in, came out the same way, and just wasn't getting it done. And Andre's told him, if you do anything this year, don't ever hunt the same tree stand twice. Hunt a different spot every day and that guy killed the biggest deer of his life that year, and that's because basically every time he hunted, he was hunting a brand-new set. And, And, And I don't know whether it's the element of surprise or, you know, burning certain spots out and the deer picking up, and they'll definitely pattern you quicker than you'll pattern them, but there's definitely something to, you know, the element of surprise and hunting And having success the very first time you go into a spot, like I said, of all all my biggest deer, I've killed them all except one. The very first time I went in, and it just nothing beats that first set.
1: Yeah, and it's so tempting to fall into that easy pattern of well, I got a tree stand there, I'll just go there. It's so easy to be tempted to do that sometimes, but it takes that you know that mental fortitude to say nope, I'm gonna bring a new spot, hang a new stand. Because like you said, I mean, I just hear over and over and over again, and I've seen it too in my own hunting, that those first, that first sit or two is just so much better than if you sit somewhere over and over. They do learn. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no doubt.
1: So you've talked about October, the early season, the lull, this whole period of time. And then you mentioned that when it comes to the rut, sometimes things get thrown out the window. Can you just briefly run us through, you know, how you're approaching that time of year, how you're hunting the rut? How do you find success at that time?
0: Well, like I said, the last few years I've been having a lot of success on on mature animals, paying attention to the moon, and hunting more um, late morning, midday stuff. You know, back in the cover, around the does and around the scrapes. You know, all those peak movement times because. Even if a buck's not going to be moving, per se, on those red moon noontimes, the, the does are. Like I said, the, those animals really key. The majority of the, of the animals in the herd really key on the prime morning, evenings, and then the overhead and underfoot. And if the does are moving on that in the middle of the day, the bucks are going to be following them. So it's really about being in the woods, being in the right location at the right time according to the moon um that's you know that's really my that's really been my go-to for early season and i, I kind of you know started adapting that to the rut i struggled with the rut for a long time i mean i didn't kill uh, i didn't kill a lot of my deer other than october for a long time and i just i don't know if it was i was hunting in the wrong spots or What the deal was, but I just never had a lot of success with the rut until I started adapting the tactics that I use for early season, you know, and it's just just a matter of tweaking that a little bit. Still with the good winds and the good moon, but you know, being out there um, midday on those times when deer are going to be up and moving, being in the right spot, and um, I don't think I can really attribute it to anything else, you know, my my tactic is is to know the best weeks according to the moon to plan that hunt and then when I'm out there to make sure that I'm in the tree in the best spot that I can find when, you know, peak activity occurs according to the to the
1: moon. So here's a question. Um you know, there there's some certain times of the year that traditionally tend to be the best for deer activity The that first couple of weeks of November is what I typically think of as being that prime pre-rut rut activity where deer are on their feet assuming you know there's not some crazy warm front or something if I only have one if I only have one week a year to hunt though if I've got that vacation and I've got you know five days seven days I can take off of work would you say that they should be looking at the moon more or should they be looking at? the time of year more because like for instance let's say your red moon days happen to be the end of october when usually you would wait till the second week of november maybe what would you say is the most important thing in your opinion
0: uh, a good question i mean i've had my best success right before the rut and right after it not so much peak rut but right before it that last few days of october first part of november you know right before those big deer get locked up with a doe and then right afterwards when they are out trolling looking for you know those last couple does coming into heat um if you pay attention to the predictions that the you know deer and deer hunting and those guys make about the rut and every day and if you know anything about the their theories behind it where you they say the the moon, second full moon after the autumn equinox is what mm-hmm. triggers the beginning of the rut, and then your peak breeding is gonna happen eight, ten, twelve days after that. You know, that gives you a general idea of when that peak breeding is gonna occur and I wanna be hunting um I wanna be hunting obviously as much as I can, but mainly before that and after that. You know, when a when a buck's locked up with a doe, they're they're not moving much. Um, and I just I think I've had my better luck right before and right after. So I prefer, you know, late October, early November, and then towards that third week in November when, when those bucks are aren't locked up with the does anymore and they're they're on the move, trolling, looking for another doe, responding to the calls a little bit better.
1: Yeah, that's that's an awesome time to be in the woods. That's for sure. So, yeah. I. I would, if I was selfish, Adam, I would say I want to sit here and talk to you for about two or three more hours because there's a lot I still have questions about and that I'm just, I'm I'm loving what we're talking about here, but we are coming up on time. Uh, So that said, Dan, do you have any final question for Adam before we wrap it up?
2: Yeah, just one really quick one. Um, I know we talk a lot about nature, about the wind, the moon and all that stuff, but do you have any guilty pleasures as far as um, products are concerned, like any scent elimination tactics or any you know quote unquote gimmicky products that that you just feel comfortable with
0: well i mean i I take my products pretty seriously, you know, and I learned my lesson with inferior stuff when i when I started using the lone wolf products, and I never realized. How much of a difference it can make when you use a real quality product, you know, like like a lone wolf tree stand, because nothing's going to ruin a hunt quicker than a squeaky tree stand. And the night that I was able to go into an area, stand and sticks on my back and hang it in a tree quietly enough that a 208 inch non typical was bedded 80 yards away and he never knew I was there, I mean, that speaks volumes about that product. And, um, you know, these days, there's a lot of great bows on the market. I don't skimp on my arrows at all. I think that's probably one of the most important products that I have. Um, I've been shooting Black Eagle arrows the last few years, and I just, I'm probably the world's worst shot, if you want to believe that or not. I have (laughs) the shakiest hands in the world, so (laughs) my equipment's got to be finely tuned. And, and, uh, yeah, I don't skimp on arrows. And, you know when it comes to scent elimination, you know I've used a lot of different stuff over the years through trial and error, but I'm religious about you know cleaning my stuff, keeping it all scent free from the washing machine and dryer all the way to the field, and then you know when I'm actually in a tree i think i've I think I've come across a if 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 there's a bulletproof system out there for beating a deer's nose. I believe that it's a combination of using an ozonics unit to cover up my scent or kill it. However that ozone works, it works. I've only used it the last few years, but I can count how many times I've been winded the last few years on one hand. I just never would have believed it until I tried it. But using that in combination with the Conquest EverCalm, which is just a it's a deodorant stick-type lure, that just smells like deer. I know Doug Roberts, the owner, personally. I've been to his farm. All of his products come from his personal deer herd. It's the real thing. And when I started using that stuff, I can't tell you how many deer would actually come to my set smelling something and looking for that scent. Huh. I mean, I put that stuff on my boots to cover my to cover myself going into my stand. I'll put a little bit on it, a little bit little bit of it on branches or trees in my shooting lanes to stop an animal. And then when I get up in my stand, I'll rub a little bit on the tree around me. And, you know, that ozonics unit could be killing that um, at the level that I'm at. But I'll take the cap off of one of those deodorant sticks of that Evercomb and I'll scrape it off, and I'll toss it in three or four different directions from where I'm at in my stand, toss it onto the ground. And when I get down in the evening, it's like there's a pocket of deer scent around my tree. And when I've had so many deer come through and when, you know, I'm sure you've seen it happen. They get into that resin and they smell a little bit of something no matter what you try to do, they, they usually pick up a little bit of something. It might not be enough to send them running for the next county, but they normally pick up on something. But with that little scent coming around the base of my tree, it's like those deer come in, and they just calm right down. They smell deer. They feel safe, and they actually they do exactly the name of the product. It calms the deer down, and it relaxes them. Because they smell deer, and they actually start looking for the deer that the smells coming from. Huh. And usually, just that, just that little bit of smell around my tree has been enough to stop those animals enough for me to to get a shot at them. And I film most of my hunts myself. I don't use a cameraman. And I can't tell you how crucial it is to have an extra second or two when I'm trying to run the camera myself and stick an arrow in a deer. I mean. I need all the help that I can get, and that has really helped me tremendously. So, yeah, when it comes to scent, I, I just I don't know how you could beat that combination of the Ozonics and the Evercom.
1: Yeah, I, I haven't used the Evercom personally, but but Dan and I, Dan and I both have seen success with the Ozonics. That's for sure. I think uh, we are right in the same boat with you on that. So, that said. Um, Man, like I like I mentioned, I would love to keep talking with you about this stuff. So if, if you're ever interested, we'd love to have you on again, Adam. I think there's a lot more we could cover. But
0: Yeah, sure.
2: Thank Are you, you going after number uh number four this year?
0: <laughs> oh man, I can't tell you how long I've been uh been hoping I'd be lucky enough to find another two hundred inch deer and it's been it's honestly been a struggle the last five or six years. I mean, those deer just don't uh they're not on every farm and I can't honestly say that I know of a two hundred inch deer right now in any of the four states that I'm hunting this year, but uh how rare you
2: never know. How rare is a two hundred incher?
0: Well I don't know if any anybody's gonna believe what I have to say when I've got three of them on my wall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, they're they're a rare animal. I mean, I killed my first one in ninety nine, so They've been pretty spread out. You know, I I don't have a special golden farm anywhere that's producing 200-inch deer. I've had to get out and find them and hunt them, and it's been a while since I've seen one. But I I don't know, man. I sure would like to think I could get a crack at one more.
2: Well, I think think, – Three's enough for you. It's time to share the wealth
0: and maybe <laughs> yeah, pass one I'm not going yeah. to get any sympathy from anybody on that
1: one. <laughs> well, I, I do hope that you do get another crack at one. And when you do, hopefully we can talk about it here again. So, Adam, thank you so much for your time. This has been an awesome conversation. And uh, I know that I've learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners have too. So thank you for that. Awesome, man. Well,
0: I hope everybody could. Pick something out of my pea brain that would help him out.
1: <laughs> we definitely did. Well, make sure anyone, anyone who's listening, be sure to check out Team 200 on the Sportsman channel. What time is that on, Adam? 3.30 on Sundays. Okay. All right. And I think some of your previous episodes are available online, too. Is that still right?
0: Yeah, you can see all the previous episodes on our website at 200inch.com.
1: Cool. I've, I've watched a number of those and really enjoyed them. So we definitely recommend you guys check it out. So Adam, good luck this season and uh, hopefully we'll hear from you again soon.
0: Yeah. Thanks. Good luck to you guys and be safe this fall.
1: Thanks a lot. Thank you. you too. Wow. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I think we got a absolute boatload of helpful information there from Adam. Like I said in the beginning, he's an incredible resource and heck of a hunter. and um I was excited to talk to him. I'm excited after talking to him. And now I'm ready to go out and apply some of the stuff in the field, which fortunately won't be too long. It's just a matter of weeks until the hunting season opens. So, that said, we are going to wrap this show up. I do have one exciting announcement, though, for you. And some of you probably already know about this, but if you did not know, I am launching a brand new. Podcast through Wired to Hunt, but different than this Wired Hunt podcast. That new podcast is called Whitetail Q and A, and it's going to be a twice a week podcast, and it's going to be short. So instead of these big hour, hour and a half long episodes, these are going to be like ten minute episodes or fifteen minute episodes at the most. And what I'm going to be doing is we're actually going to be listening to a listener submitted question. So a question that you guys have, someone will actually send in a question. Record it through audio. There's a little voicemail app I'm using, so you can send in your question. We listen to it, and then I'll answer your question on the air. And that's the whole show. Listen to one person's question, and I answer that question. Or I bring on an expert guest who answers that question. So we've launched Whitetail Q&A this week. We've got our first three episodes up online right now. Um, so you can go to wired to huntcom slash whitetailQA. And you can listen to those first three episodes and the podcast will be available on iTunes. We're just awaiting approval right now, but be sure to check in on iTunes frequently over the next few days or week and search for Whitetail Q&A. And whenever it does pop up on there, if you could, it'd be unbelievably appreciated by myself if you go in there. Leave a rating or review after you listen to the shows and let us know what you think. We we love that feedback. We need that feedback to learn You know what we can do better. So thanks in advance if you can do that. And also make sure you subscribe. Speaking of that, of course, if you'd like to, we'd love to see a rating review of the Wired to Hunt podcast on iTunes too. So thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this show, for checking out Whitetail Q&A, and for all of your support and feedback. It just means the world. So Hope you enjoyed the show. Hope you learned something. And of course, until next time, stay... Oh, I can't say that yet. We have forgot one thing today. (laughs) I'm getting ahead of myself. Rewind the tape. We need to thank our partners, our sponsors of this podcast, who do help make this thing possible, even when I say crazy things and I forget what I'm doing. So... We do need to thank Sica Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonic's Carbon Express, Lacrosse Boots, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. So thank you to all those guys and sorry I almost forgot you. So now, back to what I was saying. To all of you out there until next week, stay wired to hunt.